Section 5 of Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Pamela Krantz. Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 1 by Thomas Stevens. Chapter 3 part one of through mormon land and over the rockies a dreary-looking country is the great american desert in utah the northern boundary line of which i traverse next morning to the left of the road is a low chain of barren hills to the right the uninviting plain over which one's eye wanders in vain for some green object that might raise hopes of a less desolate region beyond and over all hangs an oppressive silence, the silence of a dead country, a country destitute of both animal and vegetable life. Over the great desert hangs a smoky haze out of which Pilot Peak, 38 miles away, rears its conical head 2,500 feet above the level plain at its base. Some riding is obtained at intervals along this unattractive stretch of country, but there are no continuously rideable stretches, and the principal incentive to mount at all is a feeling of disgust at so much compulsory walking. A noticeable feature through the desert is the almost unquenchable thirst that the dry saline air inflicts upon one. Reaching a railway section house, I find no one at home but there is a small underground cistern of imported water in which wrigglers innumerably wriggle, but which is otherwise good and cool. There is nothing to drink out of, and the water is three feet from the surface. While leaning down to try and drink, the wooden framework at the top gives way and precipitates me head first into the water. Luckily the tank is large enough to enable me to turn around and reappear at the surface head first, and with considerable difficulty I scrambled out again, with, of course, not a dry thread on me. At three in the afternoon I roll into Terrace, a small Mormon town. Here a rather tough-looking citizen, noticing that my garments are damp, suggests that cycling must be hard work to make a person perspire like that in this dry climate. At the Matlin section house I find accommodation for the night with a whole-souled section house foreman, who is keeping bachelor's hall temporarily, as his wife is away on a visit at Ogden. From this house, which is situated on the tableland of the Bed Dome Mountains, can be obtained a more comprehensive view of the great American desert than when we last beheld it. It has all the appearance of being the dry bed of an ancient salt lake or inland sea. A broad level plain of white alkali, which is easily mistaken in the dim distance for smooth still water, stretches away like a dead, motionless sea as far as human vision can penetrate, until lost in the haze, while here and there isolated rocks lift their rugged heads above the dreary level like islets out of the sea. It is said there are many evidences that go to prove this desert to have once been covered by the waters of the great inland sea that still in places laves its eastern borders with its briny flood. I am informed there are many miles of smooth hard salt flats over which a cycler could skim like a bird, but I scarcely think enough of bird-like skimming to go searching for it on the American desert. 
a few miles east of matlin the road leads over a spur of the red dome range from whence i obtain my first view of the great salt lake and soon i am enjoying a long anticipated bath in its briny waters it is disagreeably cold but otherwise an enjoyable bath one can scarce sink beneath the surface so strongly is the water impregnated with salt for dinner i reach kelton a town that formerly prospered as the point from which vast quantities of freight were shipped to idaho scores of huge freight wagons are now bunched up in the corrals having outlived their usefulness since the innovation from mules and overland ships to locomotives on the utah northern railway empty stores and a general air of vanished prosperity are the main features of kelton today and the inhabitants seem to reflect in their persons the aspect of that town most of them being freighters who finding their occupation gone hang listlessly around as though conscious of being fit for nothing else from kelton i follow the lake shore and at six in the afternoon arrive at the salt works near monument station and apply for accommodation which is readily given here is erected a windmill which pumps the water from the lake into shallow reservoirs where it evaporates and leaves a layer of coarse salt on the bottom these people drink water that is disagreeably brackish and unsatisfactory to one unaccustomed to it but which they say has become more acceptable to them from habitual use than purely fresh water this spot is the healthiest and most favorable for the prolific production of certain forms of insect life i ever was in and i spend the liveliest night here i ever spent anywhere these people professed to give me a bed to myself but no sooner have i laid my head on the pillow than i recognize the ghastly joke they are playing on me the bed is already densely populated with guests who naturally object to being ousted or overcrowded they seem quite a kittenish and playful lot rather inclined to accomplish their ends by playing wild pranks than by resorting to more austere measures watching till i have closed my eyes in an attempt to doze off they slip up and playfully tickle me under the chin or scramble around in my ear and anon they wildly chase each other up and down my back and play leapfrog and hide-and-go-seek all over my sensitive form so that i arise in the morning anything but refreshed from my experience still following the shores of the lake for several miles my road now leads over the northern spur of the promontory mountains on these hills i find a few miles of hard gravel that affords the best riding i have experienced in utah and i speed along as rapidly as possible for dark threatening clouds are gathering overhead but ere i reach the summit of the ridge a violent thunderstorm breaks over the hills and i seem to be verily hobnobbing with the thunder and lightning that appears to be round about me rather than overhead a troop of wild broncos startled and stampeded by the vivid lightning and sharp peals of thunder come wildly charging down the mountain trail threatening to run quite over me in their mad career pulling my six-shooter i fire a couple of shots in the air to attract their attention when they rapidly swerve to the left and go tearing frantically over the rolling hills on their wild flight to the plains below most of the rain falls on the plain and in the lake and when i arrive at the summit i pause to take a view at the lake and surrounding country 
a more auspicious occasion could scarcely have been presented the storm has subsided and far beneath my feet a magnificent rainbow spans the plain and dips one end of its variegated beauty in the sky-blue waters of the lake from this point the view to the west and south is truly grand rugged irregular mountain chains traverse the country at every conceivable angle and around among them winds the lake filling with its blue waters the intervening spaces and reflecting impartially alike their grand majestic beauty and their faults what dreams of empire and white-winged commerce on this inland sea must fill the mind and fire the imagery of the newly arrived mormon convert who standing on the commanding summit of these mountains feasts his eyes on the glorious panorama of blue water and rugged mountains that is spread like a wondrous picture before him surely if he be devotionally inclined it fails not to recall to his mind another inland sea in far-off asia minor on whose pebbly shores and by whose rippling waves the cradle of an older religion than mormonism was rocked but not rocked to sleep ten miles farther on from the vantage ground of a pass over another spur of the same range is obtained a widely extended view of the country to the east for nearly thirty miles from the base of the mountains low level mud flats extend eastward bordered on the south by the marshy sinuous shores of the lake and on the north by the blue creek mountains thirty miles to the east looking from this distance strangely like flocks of sheep grazing at the base of the mountains can be seen the white painted houses of the mormon settlements that thickly dot the narrow but fertile strip of agricultural land between bear river and the mighty wasatch mountains that rearing their snowy crests skyward shut out all view of what lies beyond from this height the level mud flats appear as if one could mount his wheel and bowl across at a ten-mile pace but i shall be agreeably surprised if i am able to aggregate ten miles of riding out of the thirty immediately after getting down into the bottom i make the acquaintance of the tiny black gnats that one of our whiskey bereaved friends at tacoma had warned me against one's head is constantly enveloped in a black cloud of these little wretches they are of infinitesimal proportions and get into a person's ears eyes and nostrils and if one so far forgets himself as to open his mouth they swarm in as though they think at the pearly gates ajar and this their last chance of effecting an entrance mingled with them and apparently on the best of terms are swarms of mosquitoes which appear perfect jumbos in comparison with their disreputable associates as if partially to recompense me for the torments of the afternoon dame fortune considerately provides me with two separate and distinct suppers this evening i had intended when i left promontory station to reach green for the night consequently i bring a lunch with me knowing it will take me till late to reach there these days i am troubled with an appetite that makes me blush to speak of it and about five o'clock i sit down on the bleached skeleton of a defunct mosquito and proceed to eat my lunch of bread and meat and gnats for i am quite certain of eating hundreds of these omnipresent creatures at every bite i take two hours afterward i am passing quarry section house where the foreman beckons me over and generously invites me to remain overnight 
he brings out canned oysters and bottles of milwaukee beer and insists on my helping him discuss these acceptable viands to which invitation it is needless to say i yield without extraordinary pressure the fact of having eaten two hours before being no obstacle whatever so much for cycling as an aid to digestion arriving at corinne on bear river at ten o'clock next morning i am accosted by a bearded patriarchal mormon who requests me to constitute myself a parade of one and ride the bicycle around the town for the edification of the people's minds in course they knows what a perlosifede is from seeing em in pictures but they never seen a real machine and it'd be a hefty treat for em is the eloquent appeal made by this person in behalf of the Corinthians, over whose destinies and happiness he appears to preside with fatherly solicitude. As the streets of Corinne this morning consist entirely of black mud of uncertain depth, I am reluctantly compelled to say the elder nay, at the same time promising him that if he would have them in better condition next time I happened around, I would willingly second his brilliant idea of making the people happy by permitting them a glimpse of my perlosifede in action after crossing bear river i find myself on a somewhat superior road leading through the mormon settlements to ogden no greater contrast can well be imagined than that presented by this strip of country lying between the lake and the wasatch mountains and the desert country to the westward one can almost fancy himself suddenly transported by some good genie to a quiet farming community in an eastern state instead of untamed broncos and wild-eyed cattle roaming at their own free will over unlimited territory are seen staid workhorses ploughing in the field and the sleek milk cow peacefully cropping tame grass in enclosed meadows birds are singing merrily in the willow hedges and the shade trees green fields of alfalfa and ripening grain line the road and spread themselves over the surrounding country in alternate squares like those of a vast checkerboard farms on the average are small and consequently houses are thick and not a farmhouse among them all but is embowered in an orchard of fruit and shade trees that mingle their green leaves and white blossoms harmoniously at noon i roll into a forest of fruit trees among which i am informed willard city is situated but one can see nothing of any city nothing but thickets of peach plum and apple trees all in full bloom surround the spot where i alight and begin to look around for some indications of the city where is willard city i inquire of a boy who comes out from one of the orchards carrying a can of kerosene in his hand suggestive of having just come from a grocery and so he has this is willard city right here replies the boy and then in response to my inquiry for the hotel he points to a small gate leading into an orchard and tells me the hotel is in there the hotel like every other house and store here is embowered amid an orchard of blooming fruit trees and looks like anything but a public eating house no sign up nothing to distinguish it from a private dwelling and i am ushered into a nicely furnished parlor on the neatly papered walls of which hang enlarged portraits of brigham young and other mormon celebrities while a large-sized mormon bible expensively bound in morocco reposes on the center table a charming miss of teen summers presides over a private table 
on which is spread for my material benefit the finest meal I have eaten since leaving California. Such snow-white bread, such delicious butter, and the exquisite flavor of spiced peach butter lingers in my fancy even now. And as if this were not enough for two bits, a fifty percent, come down from usual rates in the mountains, a splendid bouquet of flowers is set on the table to round off the repast with their grateful perfume. As I enjoy the wholesome, substantial food, I fall to musing on the mighty chasm that intervenes between the elegant meal now before me and the Melican planque of two weeks ago. "'You have a remarkably pleasant country here, miss,' I venture to remark to the young lady who has presided over my table, and whom I judge to be the daughter of the house as she comes to the door to see the bicycle. "'Yes, we have made it pleasant by planting so many orchards,' she answers demurely. I should think the Mormons ought to be contented, for they possess the only good piece of farming country between California and the States, I blunderingly continued. I never heard anyone say they are not contented, but their enemies, replies this fair and valiant champion of Mormonism in a voice that shows she quite misunderstands my meaning. What I intended to say was that the Mormon people are to be highly congratulated on their good sense in settling here. I hasten to explain, for were I to leave at this house, where my treatment has been so gratifying, a shadow of prejudice against the Mormons, I should feel like kicking myself all over the territory. The women of the Mormon religion are instructed by the wiseacres of the church to win over strangers by kind treatment, and by the charm of their conversation and graces. And this young lady has learned the lesson well. She has graduated with high honors." Coming from the barren deserts of Nevada and western Utah, from the land where the irreverent and irrepressible old-timer fills the air with a sulfurous odor from his profanity, and where nature is seen in its sternest aspect, and then suddenly finding oneself literally surrounded by flowers and conversing with beauty about religion, is enough to charm the heart of a marble statue. Ogden is reached for supper, where I quite expect to find a cycler or two. Ogden being a city of eight thousand inhabitants, but the nearest approach to a bicycler in Ogden is a gentleman who used to belong to a Chicago club, but who has failed to bring his wagon west with him. Twelve miles of alternate riding and walking eastwardly from Ogden bring me to the entrance of Weber Canyon, through which the Weber River, the Union Pacific Railroad, and an uncertain wagon trail make their way through the Wasatch Mountains on to the elevated tablelands of Wyoming Territory. Objects of interest follow each other in quick succession along this part of the journey, and I have ample time to examine them. For Weber River is flooding the canyon, and in many places has washed away the narrow space along which wagons are wont to make their way, so that I have to trundle slowly along the railway track. Now the road turns to the left, and in a few minutes the rugged and picturesque walls of the canyon are towering in imposing heights toward the clouds. The Weber River comes rushing, a resistless torrent, from under the dusky shadows of the mountains through which it runs for over fifty miles, and onward to the plain below where it assumes a more moderate pace, as if conscious that it has at last escaped from the hurrying turmoil of its boisterous march down the mountain. 
advancing into the yawning jaws of the range a continuously resounding roar is heard in advance which gradually becomes louder as i proceed eastward in a short time the source of the noise is discovered and a weird scene greets my enraptured vision at a place where the fall is tremendous the waters are opposed in their mad march by a rough-and-tumble collection of huge jagged rocks that have at some time detached themselves from the walls above and come crashing down into the bed of the stream the rushing waters coming with haste from above appear to pounce with insane fury on the rocks that dare thus to obstruct their path and then for the next few moments all is a hissing seething roaring cauldron of strife the mad waters seeming to pounce with ever-increasing fury from one imperturbable antagonist to another now leaping clear over the head of one only to dash itself into a cloud of spray against another or pour like a cataract against its base in a persistent endless struggle to undermine it while over all tower the dark shadowy rocks grim witnesses of the battle this spot is known by the appropriate name of the devil's gate wherever the walls of the canyon recede from the river's brink and leave a space of cultivable land there the industrious mormons have built log or adobe cabins and converted the circumscribed domain into farms gardens and orchards in one of these isolated settlements i seek shelter from a passing shower at the house of a three-ply mormon a mormon with three wives and am introduced to his three separate and distinct better halves or rather one should say better quarters for how can anything have three halves a noticeable feature at all these farms is the universal plurality of women around the house and sometimes in the field a familiar scene in any farming community is a woman out in the field visiting her husband or perchance assisting him in his labors the same thing is observable at the mormon settlements along the weber river only instead of one woman there are generally two or three and perhaps yet another standing in the door of the house passing through two tunnels that burrow through rocky spurs stretching across the canyon as though to obstruct farther progress across the river to the right is the devil's slide two perpendicular walls of rock looking strangely like man's handiwork stretching in parallel lines almost from base to summit of a sloping grass-covered mountain the walls are but a dozen feet apart it is a curious phenomenon but only one among many that are scattered at intervals all through here a short distance farther and i pass the famous thousand mile tree a rugged pine that stands between the railroad and the river and which has won renown by springing up just one thousand miles from omaha this tree is having a tough struggle for its life these days one side of its honored trunk is smitten as with leprosy the fate of the thousand-mile tree is plainly sealed it is unfortunate in being the most conspicuous target on the line for the ferocious youth who comes west with a revolver in his pocket and shoots at things from the car window judging from the amount of cold lead contained in that side of its venerable trunk next the railway few of these thoughtless marksmen go past without honoring it with a shot emerging from the narrows of weber canyon the route follows across a less contracted space to echo city 
a place of two hundred and twenty-five inhabitants, mostly Mormons, where I remain overnight. The hotel where I put up at Echo is all that can be desired, so far as provender is concerned. But the handsome and picturesque proprietor seems afflicted with sundry eccentric habits, his leading eccentricity being a haughty contempt for fractional currency. Not having had the opportunity to test him, it is difficult to say whether this peculiarity works both ways, or only when the change is due his transient guests. However, we willingly give him the benefit of the doubt. Heavily freighted rain clouds are hovering over the mountains next morning, and adding to the gloominess of the gorge, which just east of Echo City contracts again and proceeds eastward under the name of Echo Gorge. Turning around a bold rocky projection to the left, the far-famed Pulpit Rock towers above, on which Brigham Young is reported to have stood and preached to the Mormon host while halting over Sunday at this point during their pilgrimage to their new home in the Salt Lake Valley below. Had the redoubtable prophet turned dizzy while haranguing his followers from the elevated pinnacle of his novel pulpit, he would at least have died a more romantic death than he is accredited with, from eating too much green corn. Fourteen miles farther brings me to Castle Rocks, a name given to the high sandstone bluffs that compose the left-hand side of the canyon at this point and which have been worn by the elements into all manner of fantastic shapes, many of them calling to mind the towers and turrets of some old-world castle so vividly that one needs but the pomp and circumstance of old knight-errant days to complete the illusion. But as one gazes with admiration on these towering buttresses of nature, it is easy to realize that the most massive and imposing feudal castle or ramparts built with human hands would look like children's toys beside them. The weather is cool and bracing, and when, in the middle of the afternoon, I reach Evanston, Wyoming Territory, too late to get dinner at the hotel, I proceed to devour the contents of a bakery, filling the proprietor with boundless astonishment by consuming about two-thirds of his stock. When I get through eating, he bluntly refuses to charge anything, considering himself well repaid by having witnessed the most extraordinary gastronomic feat on record, the swallowing of two-thirds of a bakery. Following the trail down Yellow Creek, I arrive at Hilliard after dark. The Hilliardites are somewhat seldom, but they are made of the right material. The boarding-house landlady sets about preparing me supper, late though it be and the boys extend me a hearty invitation to turn in with them for the night. Here at Hilliard is a long V-shaped flume thirty miles long in which telegraph poles, ties, and cord wood are floated down to the railroad from the pineries of the Winta Mountains, now plainly visible to the south. The boys, above referred to, are men engaged in handling ties thus floated down, and sitting around the red-hot stove they make the evening jolly with songs and yarns of tie-drives, and of wild rides down the long V-flume. A happy, light-hearted set of fellows are these tie-men, and not an evening but their rude chanty resounds with merriment galore. Fun is in the air to-night, and Beaver, so dubbed on account of an unfortunate tendency to fall into every hole of water he goes anywhere near, 
is the unlucky wight upon whom the rude witticisms concentrate, for he has fallen into the water again to-day, and is busily engaged in drying his clothes by the stove. They accuse him of keeping up an uncomfortably hot fire, detrimental to everybody's comfort but his own, and threaten him with dire penalties if he doesn't let the room cool off, also broadly hinting their disapproval of his over-fondness for Adam's ale, and threaten to make him set him up every time he tumbles in hereafter. In revenge for these remarks, Beaver piles more wood into the stove, and with many a westernism, not permitted in print, threatens to keep up a fire that will drive them all out of the shanty if they persist in their persecutions. Crossing next day the low broad pass over the Winta Mountains, some stretches of rideable surface are passed over, and at this point I see the first band of antelope on the tour, but as they fail to come within the regulation two hundred yards they are graciously permitted to live. At Piedmont Station I decide to go around by way of Port Bridger and strike the direct trail again at Carter Station, twenty-four miles farther east. A tough bit of country, the next day at noon, finds me tucked in my little bed at Carter, decidedly the worse for wear, having experienced the toughest twenty-four hours of the entire journey. I have to ford no less than nine streams of ice-cold water, get benighted on a rain-soaked adobe plain, where I have to sleep out all night in an abandoned freight wagon, and after carrying the bicycle across seven miles of deep sticky clay, I finally arrive at Carter, looking like the last sad remnant of a dire calamity, having had nothing to eat for twenty-four hours. From Carter my route leads through the Badlands, amid buttes of mingled clay and rock, which the elements have worn into all conceivable shapes, and conspicuous among them can be seen, to the south, church buttes so called from having been chiselled by the dexterous hand of nature into a group of domes and pinnacles that from a distance strikingly resembles some magnificent cathedral high water marks are observable on these buttes showing that noah's flood or some other aqueous calamity once happened around here and one can easily imagine droves of miserable half-clad indians perched on top, looking with doleful melancholy expression on the surrounding wilderness of waters. Arriving at Granger for dinner, I find at the hotel a crestfallen state of affairs, somewhat similar to the glumness of Tacoma. Tacoma had plenty of customers, but no whiskey. Granger, on the contrary, has plenty of whiskey, but no customers. The effect on that marvelous, intangible something the saloon proprietor's intellect, is the same at both places. Here is plainly a new field of research for some ambitious student of psychology. Whiskey without customers. Customers without whiskey. Truly all is vanity and vexation of spirit. End of Chapter 3 Through Mormon Land and Over the Rockies Part 1 Recording by Pamela Krantz